0: Now we don't have any value.
1: So I've convinced a couple people to use Craig. Um, So for like for the most recent Invisible Oranges podcast episode, we used Craig. Um, We also uh, used it. um, I used it to record some a conversation with my friend um, Ian, uh, who is uh, a writer and he he does writing and stuff for like the Chicago Review of Books. Mm -hmm. Um, He had some like he wanted like a mutual back and forth interview kind of thing. Um, that we're going to put up on death sentence in a little bit. He I let him have like exclusivity with it for a bit. And then thankfully, neither one of us are dicks. So it's just like, yeah, I won't step on your toes. You do your thing with it because it was your idea. And then when you feel that you're good, I'll I'll throw it up. But uh, so now more people have been exposed to Craig. um, And they
0: is it worth it? Like you're selling those souls so that you ascend in the hellish hierarchy of Craig's regime?
1: So, yeah, that, that's what I was going to bring up. So as part of like a as part of a book club that I've just been doing with some friends, um, we have been working through the ring novels. And uh, it I feel like someone replicating the videotape every time that I introduce someone new to Craig. Like like my spirit is lifted of some burden, but yeah. it places it upon them. And now they are cursed to spread the will of Craig and the experience of Craig lest they perish. But I am free now. It's like um, NFT, right? Yeah. Gotta, uh,
0: it's a pirate, it's a pyramid scheme, so you gotta keep people hooked in.
1: I like how every every single week uh, of being alive, there's. Yeah. Uh, I help. think I think for for narrow window, like you know, maybe this time Eden and I will get to talk for an entire episode about uh, the just the book. And you know it'll it'll be like old times. We'll hop right into the book. We'll have you know a good hour, thirty minutes to an hour mulling over you know maybe the plot and the back half the thematics. And then some some fucking bullshit happens every
0: some single time. Fresh, fresh manifestation of hell spills over the planet, and immediately Silicon Valley starts to push it.
1: Oh yeah, it's yeah. like they're like standing
0: at the hell mouth with printers ready to go with the pamphlets they're like super ready to start pushing that shit
1: so for anyone who doesn't know what nfts are um one you're lucky two i'm about to hurt your soul um it's short for non-fungible token um now if you're looking at
0: non-fungible token
1: right if you look at that and you go well that's a bunch of That's just a bunch of buzzwords put together, so I still don't know what it is. You're right, Um, because unlike... I mean, we've talked about before how academia is guilty of using jargon as a gatekeeping methodology, and philosophy can be bad with it. But there are also clear moments where it is sometimes invented because I'm trying to contract five pages of information to one word, and that if we all know what that one word opens telescopes out to, we can ease communication in certain ways and it unfortunately keeps some people out, but it allows people in to communicate more fluidly. This is obviously not that this is obviously picking words so that something sounds more impressive than it is. Yeah. Um, basically like what if I had a
0: password and that password was really, really complicated. So complicated that you needed like a computer to solve the password. And then whoever was able to solve the password first got whatever is behind the password. Congrats, you now know how the blockchain works. That's basically it. Everything else is like bullshit. Of course, it's more complicated, but who gives a shit? That's basically how it works. Until now, that something behind the password was like a coin, supposedly. Of course, fake, not tied to any value. I mean, all money is fake, blah, blah, blah. But even more removed from value and productive powers, right?
1: A fake version of a fake thing. Like, Bitcoin yeah. would drive Badrillard up a fucking wall. Oh, yeah. I'm glad it... I'm glad he's dead because he'd have, like, an uh, aneurysm on the spot. Right? He was like, I wasn't making an instruction manual. I wasn't trying yeah. to give you tips. Like... Yeah.
0: <laughs> so what if behind the password you put anything... And I mean, anything like Jack Dorsey, God bless my mouth for speaking his hellish name, (laughs) um, is selling his first tweet. Now you might ask, what the fuck (laughs) kind of value thing called hyperstition? Now, if we had an editor with a cool soundboard that would be like echoey
1: should in hall reverb and if cool. i remember to do that that's yeah. that's
0: gonna be the key yeah, thing if i remember <laughs> so position you know Oh, what's super is right for example and you go about your way acting on that belief Hypostition is something that isn't real but if enough people believe in it it becomes real so the best example is actually something that we've already covered another famous pyramid scheme called the stock market mm-hmm. if you have a stock and that stock is worth five dollars and you get enough people convinced that that stock is actually worth $10, then guess what the stock is worth? It's worth $10. And that's why you have analysts and PR people and lawyers and Wall Street douchebags going on the news and telling you what a stock is worth, right? They're all trying to sell you on their hyperstition.
1: This now, touches back that. also on on elements of what we were talking about with with. Uh, more explicitly on specific elements of, of the GameStop bubble thing with CNBC itself is a kind of hyperstition machine. Um, like the fact that you have an entire channel devoted to talking about the stock market in analytical terms, whether intentionally or not plays into this feedback loop and dialectically generates the conditions that they're commenting on. So the, fa- the, the simpler term is CNBC is a spell casting itself.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think spells are an interesting thing here and we might get into it, um, down the line, but yeah. bring it back to the, I, I think it's super interesting. I right? we just need to develop the idea a bit further. And I think the important thing to remember is that the people creating the hype, right? Hyperstition hype comes from the same root they don't have to believe in the thing, right? They don't have to actually believe that the stock is worth $10. But they also don't not believe in it. So with superstition, you get either belief or non-belief, right? You either buy into the superstition or you don't. But with hyperstition, you have this third state called unbelief, which is a sort of ironic disavowal of belief. So the person kinda sorta believes in the thing, or rather they know that if they get enough people to believe alongside them, then that thing will be real. It's not real currently, they know that it's not real, but they understand the machinations by which it might be made real. And that unbelief is incredibly important because it is at the base of literature. When you read a book or you watch a movie, you might have heard the term suspension of disbelief. So, where are you left once disbelief is suspended? You don't get belief, right? It's, critically, it's not called, I don't know, construction of belief. It's called yeah. suspension of disbelief. You're left in this weird space between these two things wherein you know that what you're reading isn't real, even if it's non-fiction, by the way. You know that it's not literally taking place in front of your eyes. Like, even if you're reading true crime, the murder has already happened. It's not happening before you. And yet, you allow it to affect you with an A, as if, as if it is real, and if it is happening to you, right, to various degrees, depending on how good the work of art is. But you are in this state of unbelief and the book is doing a hypostition to you. Because if the book tells you well enough that you're scared and you go along with the ride and maintain that state of unbelief, then guess what? There is literally no way to distinguish biologically between the state of fright that you conjured yourself with the book and an actual state of fright. It looks the same. So these tensions between um hyperstition and worth and all that stuff are really fascinating and that kind of brings us back to nft right
1: it's this is uh so hyperstition as as a general thought um for uh, this is this is the footnote um uh to that is this is a citation of probably one of the only useful ideas that nick land ever came up with critically he came up with it before he uh became racist on purpose which is, um, this actually explains the history of his, uh, so he coined a term called hyper-racism. I'm not kidding about that one. And he did it initially as like an ironic act of hyperstition to create this disavowing state of, it dissembles pretty quickly into, now you're just racist on the internet. Um, He went completely crazy. He really couldn't grapple with the fact that Nick Fisher became more successful and more, um, critically appreciated than him. But when people, if you've ever heard someone like me or Eden lament, what happened to Nick land and you're only used to him as like this guy who's a racist on the internet. It's because he used to generate concepts like these, which are clearly very useful. Hyperstition plays on elements of hyperreality that like Umberto Eco examined. Um, it grapples with some postmodern Marxist, uh, uh, synthesis elements that have been Like a big project of uh, The academy For probably the past 50 to 70 years So very very useful Sucks that he made it um, yeah. You know but that's that's life baby It's like when Heidegger uh, drops some Really good things about Descend And you're like wow that's really useful What's this about the Nazi party? <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> but and then, and then Hannah Arendt Is all like it's fine He's allowed And you're
1: like but aren't aren't you also kind of like a shit bag? And it's like, look, yeah. yes, the end. <laughs> uh, That's it. But yeah, it so that that winds up being this really fucked up component about like blockchain in general and then NFTs specifically. The problem is we do actually beyond the hyperstition, we do get a ground for for their value. Um, but it's a ground that the creators of it, a material ground, that the creators seek very strongly to disavow because they don't want these these connections to be made of like what is the actual material grounding. Because that's one of the funny things about something like money or or any or really any hyperstition is that if it were purely a social construct, as then there's no material ground whatsoever it would dissipate fairly quickly. They would, it would appear, it would disappear almost like a quantum fluctuation. Not literally, but you know, it's a good metaphor for that. It's because there's some ground that some kind of calcification can take place. It's it, it like, it takes this little grain that maybe in, in any other circumstance would wash away. And it's a material thing, but it would become inconsequent time. And this hyperstition acts as almost like it makes that thing sticky in a certain metaphysical sense, and it can acquire meaning that otherwise it would have been deprived of. And so we see that sometimes within something like social constructs of gender. They're based on some material things, not to the degree that the social construct of gender presents them, but things like genetic components are real. They don't work anywhere close to the way that our social model presents them, but they are there. Um, And, you know, bodies are real um, and bodies can be different from other bodies. And so it cleaves to these little things and gives them greater meaning. Money, in a certain way, is very much in that same mold. Um, So there is obviously the term economics is applied to the study of the flow of money, but the term numismatics is the study of the value of money. So it's not the flow of it. It's it gets at that deeper question of like not how many dollars is this worth, but why is a dollar valuable at all? Like, why do I want a dollar when, you know, I need food to live. I need shelter to live. I need art to feel happy. I need, you know, like, um, I don't know, like sex or gadgets or, you know, houseplants. These things make sense. But how come a dollar? something that is distinctly not those things. In fact, definitionally currency must be a thing that is not the object of value. And so we have a whole field studying that question of numismatics and in, in a lot of ways, as, as Eden was gesturing, that itself is an example or an examination of the hyperstition of money as an object.
0: Yeah. So this is also
1: in retro in, in, Retroactively, this is how we know that hyperstition is a good analytic because it helps us answer questions we've had for a while or more deftly explain fields that have existed. This touches on blockchain in that if the material ground that these touch on is energy usage and energy cost, and it's not just energy cost because mere energy cost of like, oh, this represents an amount of electricity or, um, energy cost of, say, graphics cards for mining Bitcoin or things like that. If only it were that simple, the energy directly translates to environmental costs. And so in a very real way, the actual material ground of something like a Bitcoin or something like an NFT is like amount of ozone destroyed or amount of uh, carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide expelled into the air like in terms of uh cubic meters um
0: so if we take a step back and go back to the physical process as you pointed out and kind of like complete the simplistic diagram that i was drawing when we were starting i think it leads us back towards that environmental price and how it gets shut out of the actual process right so we said that i have a password and this computer is trying to guess that password and that computer in order to do that, needs power, right? It needs to be plugged in. And the harder it needs to work at that problem, the more power that it requires. Now, over time, the problem inherently needs to get harder and harder, right? Because if I've guessed it once, then I've guessed it infinite times. The problem needs to change and evolve alongside the computing power that then races to catch it, right? And then you have this race wherein the problems get, more and more complicated and the cost of solving them gets higher and higher now as langdon pointed out saying power or even electricity is a way for us to not think about what that means that means like you know cubic uh tons that are burnt of oil and that means so and so carbon dioxide that is released into the atmosphere which in turn means degrees of heating so the more that costs go up to solve these ever-complex problems, the more it costs in environmental terms to do an NFT, to take a piece of art or a tweet or whatever and put it on the blockchain and then trade its ownership. Now, the two things I want to bring to your attention here is that we actually have the perfect metaphor already to discuss that distance between us, like the person who is doing NFT, I'll say it differently. If I came up to you and I said, oh, you want to sell your art digitally online? That's great. If every time you do that, I will kill, let's take a non-cute puppy, like a non-cute animal, I'll kill like a duck in front of your eyes. Most people will say, What the fuck? Called crops <laughs> probably. But they wouldn't take the deal. They wouldn't let me like sorry for being graphic, like slit the duck's throat.
1: Yeah, they, they and importantly, they wouldn't like try it a little bit and yeah. you know, sit and weigh it. Yeah. Um because this is where degrees also become important. Like it's one thing to be like, I will kill ten thousand in one batch, or like, I'll kill them one at a time, and every time yeah. you do it, I'll kill most people wouldn't even take one, let alone thousands. numerous. Yeah.
0: Sure. I, totally. So we need distance between what we're actually doing to our planet with our own two hands and um, ourselves. And that um, distance, or rather the space that's created between us and the actual world and the actual things that we're doing to the world, is the fucking Matrix, right? Like, is in the 1999 movie. And the actual world that we've created is the desert of the real. And if you've read like one French philosopher, <laughs> just one, you know that the desert of the real is a pretty big deal for those guys. And they go bananas for it. Something about they Algiers. Fucking, yeah, they fucking love it. Žižek um, has written um a an article on it the line from the matrix refers to a phrase from baudrillard's simulacra and simulation and it's actually i'm like uh, i like i like the matrix and i think it's actually a good philosophical allegory right Uh, but i think this is even within that successful movie this is one of the best parts of it right like neo goes outside for the first time and morpheus is sitting in his Chill. spoilers for the matrix um <laughs> i guess um and he says welcome to the desert of the real and the desert of the real is the actual world outside of the matrix and it's completely decimated by geoengineering and the wars and all that shit this is literally not figuratively this is literally what's happening with nft you sit plugged in into your machine and line goes up Right? You have a bank account, first you pay 30 bucks or 100 bucks or whatever for gas, that's like the electricity, it's not called electricity, it's not called power, it's called gas, which is even more removed, right? Then you put it on a market, you don't see anyone that you are trading with, and someone just buys it from you. It's crypto, so you don't know who bought it from you, you can't take the deal back, you can't refund it, and that's it. As far as you're concerned, the process has ended. And yet, somewhere out there, a duck's throat is being slit to power that transaction. That's literally what happens. It takes like 50 million steps, but that's literally what happens. Um, And yet you are so mediated and so divorced from what actually is happening that you're unable to disavow. Why this avow? And this is where everything comes together. The hyperstition is not just the value. Hyperstition is also the people trading in NFT themselves. Because you know that the duck is being killed. You know that the duck is dying. Because we're not in fucking um, the 1980s or the 70s. Everybody knows that climate change is real. And NFT, like the last two weeks on Twitter, have been insufferable because everybody's talking about NFT and their ecological price. So anybody still doing NFT, they know that the duck is being killed. It's just done so far removed from them that they can put themselves into a state of unbelief.
1: And all of this is, yeah, all of this is driven by something that drives me up the fucking wall. Um, And I get some flack from artist friends of mine for this, and I get it. But I think it's fair. We have this. Capitalism induced fixation on art must produce profit and artists must be able to live off of the labor of producing their art alone. These are good values on paper. I don't think there's necessarily something inherently wrong with them, but Like anything profit-driven, like anything rooted in addressing these problems of capitalism within the structures of capitalism rather than a revolutionary process that would upend the processes of capitalism, left alone, they induce a kind of psychosis. And a kind of moral and ethical psychosis where you can convince yourself up is down, left is right, backwards is forwards, black is white, etc. It's where we get... People who, honest to fucking God, should know better. Someone like James Jean, the artist, fantastic yeah. artist, like tremendous technical acumen, incredibly moving uh, art. You know, he's been active in the comic world and in the fine art world for a very long time. Nothing but respect for his work. He really should not be spouting the shit of like, well, don't you want artists to make money? I really, you know, I, I'm trying to defend the future of, and it's like, you know as well as I do, that this is not how we should be doing this, or we have this one hurts me a lot. I know it hurts you a lot as well. Even my roommate who introduced me to this guy, uh, he was like, uh, "This is this is just dork shit." Seeing Jacob Collier selling NFTs of pictures yeah. of his like Pro Tools sessions, yeah, and then the the loose the thin justification of like, "Well, I'm going to be investing into." examine it like carbon offsets and figuring out you know the future it's of this to make it more fucking
0: bullshit it's right bullshit.
1: i'm like there are lots of critiques of jacob collier that i think just reek of people being insecure about him and i can follow that i'm not here to fault insecurity i do hand wave a lot of the stuff like his cords are too big shut up um but when he does stuff like this i'm like no you've he's opened the door for very very real critique that's so you know so the
0: thing- thing is it's like oh jesus this drives me up the fucking wall first of all fuck let me calm down carbon offsets are fake yes carbon credits are fake carbon taxes are fake the master's house will not be dismantled by the master's tools if capitalism is offering you a way out of an ecological price then you are being duped and the second thing is i said like Two things before, and the first one was the Desert of the Real. The second thing goes back to Nick Land and also our good friends, the and Gotterie, of course.
1: There they are. That's, that's the one per episode. At least one per thing. episode.
0: Yeah. Otherwise we we they get they access, they like take us outside and shoot us. Mm-hmm. Um God, I wish they would. Anyway <laughs> we'd be there's, free. <laughs> uh, there's this meme, another DNG meme, act surprised, um, of accelerate the flows right? And this idea comes from Hegel, of course, ding, ding, ding. That's the other guy we gotta mention every time. And this idea that the dialectic works in these back and forth flows, right? Between the assertion and the negation, there's this uh, feedback loop, right? The contradictions keep spinning faster and faster and faster until they break. So Deleuze and Gauterie use that to say that we should start moving faster. We should take those flows, those back and forth between the assertion and the contradiction, the thesis and the antithesis, and accelerate them and and get those iterations moving faster, so that the shit that we don't like, like authority and gender realism and all that stuff, will break down. Nick Land, our good friend and racist boomer, (laughs) <laughs>
1: On honorary, honorary, honorary boomer, um, boomer is a spirit, not an age group. That's that's yeah, that's the right. way that you extract the ageism from it. Is it? It's yeah. a it's a way of approaching it's the state world. Of he yeah. very much is a boomer.
0: Yeah, it's a state of dharma. One might say. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he his whole thing was, this is it. This is the whole thing. This is why we're doing what we're doing. We want to accelerate the flows and we want to get things so weird so fucked up, so indescribably horrific that it all just comes crashing down. If that rings any bells, that's because that's where the term accelerationism comes from. People who think that the contradictions inside of capitalism need to be accelerated. Where Nick Land was the chosen one but betrayed us was where he said yeah, and after capitalism collapses because of those contradictions, we should actually go back to doing feudalism. But that's mid late era <laughs> Nickland, right early Nickland was i don't know what's after just give me that acid drop so that i can fucking get high let's talk about cyborgs having sex with octopi um just to accelerate Which, all that, that
1: stuff shit. is tight to be fair but
0: yeah i mean <laughs> i i'm not a i'm not an octopus guy myself but i don't king shame like you do you do all you right. um so what the fuck does this have to do with nfd here's the thing even if tomorrow all of the ecological problems were solved, which is what the Silicon Valley snake oil salesman will tell you because they'll move from proof of work to proof of stake. We're not going to talk about what that is because who gives a fuck. Um, It's never going to happen. They're always dangling it like um, this cure-all, which it isn't, by the way, and also they're not going to do it. But even if they somehow solved all of the ecological problems, NFT and cryptocurrency are inherently... pyramid scheme inherently. The only way to make money from cryptocurrency and NFT is to sell what you bought for a lower price, sell that for a higher price. That's literally the only way to make money on it because there is no inherent value. In a stock market, there is still kind of a way to create actual value by looking at undervalued companies, figuring out that they're undervalued and then helping them by your investment to meet the, the expectations and the potentials that you believe that they have. But with cryptocurrency, even that like thin excuse for value creation is gone because there is no company. There is no product. There is only the coin. So literally the only way you can make money is to fool other people, to say this thing that I paid 10 bucks for is actually worth 20. And if you can't convince them of that, then you're going to lose all your money because you'll sell at a loss and you'll just lose your money. Now, what does that have to do with the flows and accelerationism and all that shit? It's literally a self-feeding loop, right? It starts at zero dollars and every generation, quote-unquote, because that generation can be every five minutes if you get into like Bitcoin and the hype around that, every generation gets fucked more than the previous one and fucks the next one more than they got fucked and if that sounds like a whole lot of fucking and that sounds actually hot then it's not that kind of fucking it's it's the bad carass- kind that sucks it's to be crass about it no one comes there's no <laughs> orgasm it's just a constant tease where you have to keep on teasing the other guy harder than you will tease yourself now Remember that whenever this like generational thing happens and the value increases, so does the complexity of the chain, right? Going back to what we said in the beginning, which ties us back to the fucking duck getting killed. So you're fucking over this guy, and he's gonna fuck over the guy after him, and the more time the more times that happens, the more ducks are gonna get killed. But you don't you can't stop. You can't, uh, get off the train until you fucked the next guy in line. Because if you get off the train before you do that, you will lose everything that you invested. And how does that Nick Land thing start? This is how the story goes. I'm cheating, I'm typing. Oh fuck, runaway techno capital something, right? That's how Fang Numena starts. Meltdown. So yeah. let me let me just it's a really good, really good thing that he wrote, right? Again. Terrible man, super racist, don't like him. But the story goes like this. Earth is captured by a techno-capital, techno-capital singularity as renaissance rationalization and oceanic navigation locked into commoditization takeoff. Logistically accelerating techno-economic interactivity crumbles social order in auto-sophisticating machine runway. Runway, sorry. As the markets learn to manufacture intelligence, politics modernizes, upgrades paranoia, and tries to get a grip. That's a whole lot of bullshit. And the second paragraph is even fucking worse. It's so bad. But what he's saying here is literally cryptocurrency. You can say a lot about Nick Land, but he got a lot right. When he's saying auto-sophisticating machine runaway, that's exactly what we're witnessing here. It's a machinic process that auto-replicates and becomes more and more sophisticated each time that it does, and it's runaway. It cannot be stopped. Like, Bitcoin took a fucking, what was it, like, 5,000% loss at some point, and it's still around. It cannot be fucking stopped. And as it keeps going, it's fucking killing all of us.
1: He reminds me of Nietzsche in a certain way. Not it's good, obviously, um, yeah. but that especially that sense of grappling with these things seemed to accelerate his own, like... I, psychic degradation like not saying it in terms of mental illness but in terms of like the value of his psyche um I mean, drastically I think, I think
0: like, yeah I, I totally agree with that i think like part of land's project when he was you know at warwick university and doing ccru stuff yeah um was to return to nietzsche through the lesson Guattari's perspective, this is getting like really technical and jargony, but that the, the idea was to rescue this kind of um, wild, unrestrained call for human independence, even though Nick Land is one of the first to talk about the unhuman, right, the inhuman, this idea of rescuing like this feverish tone that Nietzsche had, away from well, I'm gonna be controversial here, what the French did to him. Um if that makes sense. I mean,
1: no, that yeah, it that makes perfect sense to me and it I think it touches on a deeper, longer running thing that we've we've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. Cause I'm I'm a big, big Nietzsche defender, um, both from reading his own stuff, especially the Kaufman um translations and annotations. God, what a fucking brilliant dude Walter Kaufman was. Um yeah. but then also reading Deleuze and Guattari, especially um starting with difference and repetition uh, which i which was a complete fluke i just i went to the bookstore to try to find some deludes to actually read some and i just legit couldn't find Anti-Oedipus or uh, a thousand plateaus so I the only one to read had, it. the only one they had was difference and repetition so i was like okay i recognize those as as nietzschean terms okay i can i can dive in there total fucking fluke that i read his masterwork first um, <laughs> and that <laughs> And that in retrospect, reading that one first grounded a lot of elements of uh, anti-Oedipus um, and capitalism and schizophrenia as a whole uh, that I think read as like complete unhinged, just wackadoo nonsense. It's like, oh, OK, I know similar to the later period work of Nietzsche, if you only read Thus Spake Zarathustra, and you haven't read any of the other stuff. You don't necessarily get why is this written like a novel? Why are there poems in it? You know, why is there why are there songs in it? Like, why is there a plot? Um, but having read his other stuff, you know how to parse it. Um And so we're lucky, I think, me and you, Eden, that people like because the land wasn't the only one trying to reclaim Nietzsche, thankfully, um, but that people carried out those processes so that by the time we emerged into university, it was not nearly as outlandish to say that there was um, a dark embracing of Nietzsche by anti-Semites who we v- vehemently opposed. I saw a dumb fucking take on Twitter recently about Nietzsche being a famed anti-Semite, and I'm like, oh my fucking God, I hate you. I hate you. He wrote whole. He wrote a whole fucking book about how anti-Semites are uh, basically could never consider themselves Uber mentioned because their entire ideology is based out, based out of racial insecurity and racial negation rather than personal affirmation. Um, that it's never that they are worthwhile. It's that some racialized other is holding them back um, in a like hateful bigoted way. And the very first thing he wrote after he went crazy and got uh, in uh put into an asylum was a lengthy screed against anti-semites that was literally the first thing out of his pen yep um but then yeah there was that disavowal of him based on stuff that his sister did in terms of editing his work totally fair if that was people's only brush with his work i can absolutely follow um yeah. And then we got this weird middle period where French philosophers, French continental philosophers couldn't decide whether they wanted to embrace or disavow him. And there was early Marxist philosophy, um, like Frankfurt School stuff, kind of mutilated Nietzsche because it didn't really know what to do with him. And I have a lot of feelings about this. So many feelings. But yeah, in regards to how it touches on on NFTs, it's. It's like someone trying to sell you a cloud of poisonous smoke. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I don't, I, it, uh, it short circuits the mind. Also, like, how do people keep fucking falling for this? Like, so this is what's going to boomerize me eventually, is I'm going to be like, how is, many times? Like,
0: This is going to jokelize me, dude. I'm going joker mode.
1: Right? I'm like, yeah. this, this we is even, Bitcoin, I can at least loosely follow because as much as it's fake, it's the perpetual thing. Even if it's fake, even if it's destructive, if you're a working class person and all I need to know is buy low, sell high, and I can potentially make a lot of money doing this money that I need to live, like not to vilify working class people who find themselves embroiled in capitalism, because until we get out of it, you're on a chopping block. Like you need uh, that money to pay rent, to get food. And, and like these struggles make sense
0: for nft as well right like this is not the artist's fault like artists out there i mean people like jacob collier who make he makes a lot of money Yeah. um but also other artists who are really well established and don't literally need this money that's one thing but like common you know folk artists who are trying to make a living and this is another avenue to make money i totally get it this is how capitalism does what it does it grabs you by the balls it says yeah you know the ducks are dying but if you don't do this thing and kill those ducks then you're going to die
1: yeah and in the question of who matters more to me a duck or myself we all we all know how people answer that question it's we only don't get revolutionary this is the unfortunate very slight accelerationist in me coming out but thank god i mitigate (laughs) thank god those the people who don't mitigate or regulate their own accelerationist impulse or...
0: yeah wield let's say it
1: yeah say, uh, uh yeah me and me and Gareth used to talk a lot about this where it's uh, the the nice way to put it is it's reckless. Uh that's the nice way. Yeah. Um uh you're playing fast and loose with people who will suffer under this acceleration. Um whatever whatever we, we all have shared thoughts there. Um but that one of the things that keeps us ensnared is the fact that we are not jostled out of it i mean in in many ways that's what the role of a vanguard party is is specifically to create these minor accelerations or these little quantum ripples that the revolutionary impulse can start calcifying around because to go back to it as i mentioned revolution itself is a kind of hyperstition it It is fated to die until it reaches a threshold in which it is fated to win. And the only differential there is faith. Um, Which is terrifying as a Marxist to grapple with. We want materiality. (laughs) We want a firm thing. We know what to do with that. But when you go, it's like realistically, could the patriarchy survive if there was a general strike of all women, all non-binary people? No. No. No, absolutely not. It would shut down. And so then the question becomes, why haven't we seen these general strikes? And we get to some really ugly, painful questions that, thank thank God, have a kind of answer, which is that until people are jostled out of that thing and into a space where they go, oh, there are enough people that we could win if we did something, and I wouldn't just be throwing everything away, then you can get movement. But until then, we w- we per- we will perpetually see dumb horseshit like the GameStop bubble, NFTs. It, it will be exciting in a horrible way to see what the fuck is going to happen between this and the next episode. Um, yeah. Especially as like we're finally feeling like we're coming out of at least this stage of the effects of coronavirus. Um, vaccines are going out um a co-worker of mine has scheduled to have one of his i know that you've had at least at least one dose a lot of people yeah, i've had both starting... oh thank god that
0: it's actually kicking my fucking ass by the way
1: <laughs> i've heard rough things from people yeah. um i mean obviously it's better than the alternative oh
0: but... yeah no no get vaccinated 100 percent. but uh... i
1: mean both of us i think are Waiting with bated breath in the bad way of like once a certain threshold of people have gotten vaccinated, how quickly is the political machinery going to try to act like none of this ever happened? And now people owe back payments on rent. They owe back payments on medical treatment. um, Yep. As well as the long-term health effects for anyone who contracted COVID. Like, how quickly are we going to try to wipe that under the rug and not give them any kind of subsidized support, even though... Yeah, that
0: already started, like, from day one, like, complete denial on long COVID and all that stuff.
1: That, like, no one contracted COVID because... or Not no one. Very few people contracted COVID because they personally didn't do enough. And even with the people who didn't personally do enough, we also live in a... a uh, systematic structure, or or in are enmeshed in one, right, whether we want to or not. That, we live in a society. Yeah, that made it more likely that their own personal recklessness would actually generate these outcomes. Where in a better regulated society, even if you were reckless, yeah, it wouldn't near. Yeah, so I'm. Oh, I can't. I can very much wait for that. I don't. I don't want to <laughs> run into that one. Um, it's coming though. I feel it. So, Two things at the outset here. One,
0: just a cool little tidbit. Apparently, the CCRU website is still live. Well, that rules. That's fucking... That rules. Like, there's legitimately... Yeah, that's fantastic. Good, there's legitimately good text on this thing. Beyond, like, Nick Land. There's also a lot of bullshit. Remember when we did House of Leaves and we said that? Inherently, a lot of this stuff is... Yeah, it is bullshit, but it still has really interesting things. This is, like, the foundation of that. Yeah. Um Like the world's Lemurian time sorcery literally appears on the website several times. But it's a cool website and I think also it's like a relic of how weird the internet used to be back then and what people did with the internet, um, which is really interesting. And the second tidbit, should we do music?
1: Yeah. I think now is a perfect time for us to do some music and transition into thank God a book that doesn't make me angry.
0: I think there are a lot of parallels here and I'd be very surprised to be honest, if people from the CCRU didn't read M. John Harrison.
1: So should we, we talked about some music beforehand and we picked out two things. Should we go with the, uh, the death metal one or the, I guess also kind of death metal now that I'm thinking about it.
0: I was gonna do a joke and say let's do the heavy thing first, but they're both really <laughs> heavy. <laughs> uh, but I feel like we're more in like a frenzy, feverish state at the moment. So I think um, steel bearing hand is the first one we'll do.
1: That that is what I was uh, what I was feeling as well. Um... Yeah,
0: these guys fucking rule. They'll form. What the fuck are they from? Not San Dallas. Jose, they're the from
1: Texas. World. They're on, they're part oh. of this wave of Texas heavy metal that we've been blessed with over the past handful of years. Where we get um, Power Trip is from Texas. We have Frozen Soul from Texas. What's yep. what's that like sci-fi thrash band that's from Texas that they signed to? Oh, and found, they...
0: yeah, I know exactly who you're talking um, about, but I don't
1: remember the name. Fuck. I have an album of theirs on my computer. Let me find it. Um, so, still yeah, we've hand. just been seeing like this incredible fucking wave of yeah. hybrid of thrash, prog, death, and black metal from and traditional heavy metal from Texas. Aren't like Eternal Champion also from Texas or something? Are they? I that could be misremembering that, but like it's there's so much fucking good metal coming from Texas right now. It's fucking crazy.
0: Yeah, they are they're from austin
1: uh if you're listening uh andy god bless you for always repping texas metal you are so goddamn right also yeah. my friend kit always big on that texas metal always putting me on the dope shit
0: yeah yeah there's um some great stuff out there and Steel bearing hand i first told them i think 2017 they released a self-titled full length in 2015 and it's like one of the hardest albums I've heard in my life. It's death thrash, but it just takes absolutely zero prisoners. It kind of channels a lot of, both from the band, but also from the movie or book, Conan vibes, like Conan oh, the Barbarian. Yeah. They have a track called Kneel Before the Steel and the Charnel God and shit like that. It's very, very aggressive, but also it can get super weird. Like The fourth track on it, Tyrannical Shadows, is like nine minutes long. Has this weird ambient section, but when they go, they fucking go. And this new album they have coming out called Slay in Hell, it releases 2nd of April. They have a first track from it, the opening one called, listen listen to this track name, Command of the
1: Infernal Exarch. Fuck. what the fuck <laughs> right so that's so if, that's so if you good. if you like heavy metal and you hear that and you don't get pumped no you actually don't like heavy metal get out yeah you're yeah. you're out of the hall go <laughs> yeah um it's just god so it rules oh so it, it rules it's, so bad and like it's the perfect kind of like i tend to call them thrash metal even though they have that deathy thing because they they're like they're they're that perfect kind of like early death metal which is thrash that's just so frantic that like you need to call it something else oh god i love that shit god i love it
0: yeah and um this new track is like exactly what these guys love to do the main riff is has just that little bit of dirt that gives it the groove but it absolutely doesn't relent or give up any of its aggression and it's just like non-stop it just doesn't stop keeps going uh pummeling you in the face and um if you're in that mood of meltdown accelerated processes fucking capitalism death cult then i think this uh this band will give you the catharsis you need um yeah enjoy
1: that was steel bearing hand with uh fuck i forgot the name of the song already command
0: um, of the infernal exarch
1: command of the infernal exarch i so i've had a promo of this album for a little bit and i normally will uh listen to it all i i listen to most of my records all the way through but this one i press play and immediately uh like shadow box in my living room i'm just like oh i'm gonna kill everybody I'm yeah. just so I, I haven't looked at the track title since I first opened it because it just, it blends into like, oh, I'm going to rip all of their guts and spines out. Oh God, it's so tight. um You know what else is tight? That's right, books. <laughs> yeah,
0: books. uh So, oh boy, I'm getting that like shaky hands when speaking of the Sackle kind of vibe. We are going to be talking about m john harrison's light and m john harrison is one of those
1: underrated writers he's, he's a lot of i got it oh you go on <laughs> go ahead no, no no go uh, ahead i i got introduced to him as like he's one of those guys that he's like all of your favorite writers favorite writer and a lot exactly of what he... i was
0: going to say he's, he's like lazny
1: in that way where it's like it's like oh everyone that you love they all adore this guy like i'd been yeah. I'd been meaning to read something of his for a while because he had that one like magical realist book that came out um the sunken land begins to and rise again again yeah um and it was off of the back of that one that i I'd, I'd not really heard of him prior to that or I must have heard the name but it just didn't sink in but that one yeah. got buzzed about by like every single like contemporary writer that I care about. And it was published through uh glance who were fucking great press. They have like nothing but winners on that one. Yeah. And yeah, I looked back and I was like, oh shit. I was looking at like other writers talk about him, um, like comic writers, sci-fi writers, horror writers, um weirdo fiction writers like
0: <laughs> Yeah, this guy is as weird as it gets, right? So he was actually directly involved in the new wave of science fiction. And I don't know if you've picked up on it from the last few episodes, but I'm a really big new wave guy. And so is Langdon. Um, He was the literary editor of the New Worlds magazine. Which in many
1: ways was like the locus of the stuff, at least in America and in Britain. That was like...
0: For sure. Let me just read you like a list of contributors, just like a few. (laughs) Um, Brian Aldiss, J.G. Ballard... Thomas Dish, um, Moorcock, and many others.
1: Uh so, I think that like Norman Spinrad also wrote for it sometimes and just like Yeah, I'm sure yeah, they did. Like yeah, literally every single person.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure they did. Like there were so many people writing for this magazine and people who later became like some of the biggest names in in science fiction, and M. John Harrison was a part of this. He also wrote some stories using um, Michael Moorcock's um, characters, specifically Jerry Cornelius, and I think one other. So he was very much of that milieu of writers, and he also says so himself, like he's given interviews, saying that he grew up reading, you know, when he was 15 years old, he was reading... Alfred Bester and Ballard and Kerouac and Ginsburg and all these like f- mainstays of, you know, American and otherwise you know, weird literature. And then M. John Harrison went on to create some of the fucking most bizarre and mind-bending books you can think of. Um, among those, the Vericonium series, which, let me, let me tell you, I've read a lot of weird <laughs> shit. I think you've you figured that out by now I for the last like 10 years I've been reading like a lot of avant-garde this is one of the weirdest books I've ever read it's this classic there's a city in the center of it and it's constantly shifting so it's kind of like echoes Delaney's Dalgren I was about to say book.
1: that the way that I'd um the way that I'd first run into uh M. John Harrison was actually an essay that Delaney had written about um, some of the things that went into making dahlgren and being inspired by uh yeah and
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense it's like you know that genre of science fantasy which is kind of Vancian. and we need to get to talk to him about jack Vance, big asshole oh. by the way oh but yeah. really good writer um Vance-ian, but like weirder more degraded and corrupt and breaking apart. It's literally like giant grasshoppers that run things at some point. It's absolutely insane. And then he wrote um, a bunch of stuff like the Centauri device, which is kind of like a weirder My Star of the Destination, if you can believe that that's a thing. Very weird book originally, but the Centauri device is <laughs> weirder. And then he wrote the Kefahushi Tract trilogy which has had the illustrious honor of winning the James Tiptree Award and the Arthur C. Clarke Award and the Philip K. Dick Award, but also being mentioned by Clipping's The V Diggs on Splendor and Misery. He name drops the kefahuchi track, and that's when I was like, oh shit, there's something deeper about this album, because if someone knows who the kefahuchi track is, what it, what it is, then they're into the deep shit, right? Um... This trilogy is made up of Light, published in 2002. And then its sequel, Nova Swing, which I highly recommend that you read. It's so different than Light, but really fucking good. 2006. And then when did he publish Empty Space? 2012. 2012. Yeah. These books are... Okay, I'm going to say a thing, but you're not going to think about what you usually think about when I say that thing. And that's space opera. But instead of imagining loosely clad women and boisterous men trapezing across the galaxy, you're going to imagine a tripartite story which follows a girl who became a ship, but instead of this like romantic vision of her becoming a ship, they chopped up her body and connected her to machines never to return to be human. Um, A guy called Ed... Chayanez, I think that's how you pronounce it, Chinese, I don't know, who is he used to be a hotshot pilot, but now he is hooked up into a tube of protein and effluvia where he hallucinates his life away. And Michael Kearney, a quantum physicist on the verge of discovering some sort of like space travel related invention that powers all of the engines in the far future of the first two stories, But it's also a sexual deviant and a serial killer. Slowly losing his mind as he runs away from himself, basically. That's the premise. That's all I can say without (laughs) spoiling the book. It is... I think the J.G. Ballard reference here makes a lot of sense, right? It is feverish in the the sense that J.G. Ballard was feverish. It's so flowery, and filled with purple prose, on purpose. In a way, that's why I said that there's no way that the CCRU didn't read him, because his style of over-describing things with these technical terms, giving the book a kind of like cyberpunk sheen, even though it's space opera, is second to none. I've never seen someone use that device in such a good way. And it is on purpose. It's not because he's a bad writer, obviously. He does it on purpose to kind of like bury you under... The weight of the future, right? How he, alien the
1: future is. He does this beautiful thing with his purple prose. This is one of the things that. So I um I'm obviously the the prose fixationist um just in general. <laughs> uh, he does this really fantastic thing that I love with good purple prose because obviously there is good and bad. There's stuff where it feels like someone just doesn't have an editor and they're they're rambling without contributing or contributing. Uh, toward a nothingness that doesn't feel deliberate he instead feels very Blakean. this actually has a lot of linguistic ties in certain ways to things like the vore trilogy where it it feels like a frothing vomit of words um but like like what you were mentioning there are these shreds of of the cyberpunk that he himself uh helped influence because like William Gibson famously um, strongly cites M. John Harrison, especially in like his prose stylization for things like um, the Bridge Trilogy, which has Neuromancer in it, Um, uh, and like Mona Lisa Overdrive and stuff like that. And so you get this feedback loop of him applying these... And you also see bits of it in like Ghost in the Shell and stuff like that, where the idea is... Uh actually no, I can I can pull back a little bit further again. You also get a little bit in the post-cyberpunk stuff of early Neil Stevenson, where the idea is I drop 10 ideas and I explore one of them. And then as I'm exploring one, I drop ten more and I ex I explore one. So it feels like this constant like exploding flower of of concepts. Um I I really, really adored how like how frantic it felt in terms of like these, these shattered shards that like, I feel yeah. like they're broken off of these much bigger concepts, but yep. he, like, I only have time to give you this one little shard because we have to go do this other thing. Um, it, it added such this again, that, that Blakey sense of like psychedelia, even though it's a space opera. Um, and even though the events of the book aren't... Well, actually, some of them are f- pretty fucking psychedelic now that I'm thinking about them again. Um, yeah. There's a lot of stuff about uh, the Kafu- Kefuhuchi track itself, which is, um,
0: uh, I guess... Uh, um, a black hole without an event horizon.
1: Uh, stuff happens with that that I would describe as if Interstellar were a good movie. Um, It's not... But what I mean, if it was? Um, the
0: last the last few chapters are a fucking trip. It's yeah. a, it's, a, it's a fucking acid trip.
1: It feels very much like, um, like a cyberpunk jazzed up take on something like 2001: A Space Odyssey. Yeah. Um, complete with its philosophical themes as well. I mean, they aren't identical, but it's more that.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a precursor tech, right? Yeah. That fundamentally like corrodes humanity or the hum- human perspective on reality, right? And it doesn't communicate in a clear way because of its limitations, because it's so different than humans. And that's actually where hypostition um, comes back in, right? The whole premise of the Kefahuchi tract is that this cosmic thing again, maybe it's a black hole without an event horizon. You don't know who to trust when you're reading this book, so you don't know if that's actually the thing. But for some reason, every technology in the area of the tract works as long as you believe that it does, which is exactly the hypostition. And if you don't believe me, and to give you an example of that uh, purple prose, let me read you uh, a passage from the book. Behind all this bad behavior was an insecurity magnificent in scope, metaphysical in nature. Space was big, and the boys from Earth were awed despite themselves by the things they found there. But worse, their science was a mess. Every race they met on their way through the core had a star drive based on a different theory. All those theories worked, even when they ruled out one another's basic assumptions. You could travel between the stars, it began to seem, by assuming anything. It was affronting to discover that, so when they fetched up on the edge of the tract, looked it in the eye, and began to dispatch their doomed entradas, the earthlings were hoping to find, among other things, some answers. They wondered why the universe, which seemed so harsh on top, was underneath so pliable. Anything worked. Wherever you looked, you found. They were hoping to find out why. So into this, like, mishmash of tech and belief, you get these... So I think it's very popular nowadays to write protagonists that the reader is supposed to despise. But let me tell you, these guys are on a whole different level.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, these guys fucking
0: suck. These guys suck. So you have um, Genlisher, Saraya Mao Genlisher, and she's the pilot. And at first, she's this very, you know, sleek... Um, she doesn't have a body, but like leather-clad cyberpunk hacker, like right? she's moving at these, you know, speed of uh, sound, even even more than that, like uh, pico-second reaction times, and she has this, neat, this fangled chip that comes from Kefahuchi tech, by the way, the precursor tech, and she's all sleek and stuff. But then you start to slowly realize that she's a child with like the equivalent of 50 million nukes at her disposal. And she basically just jumps around the galaxy killing shit and lashing out because she signed up. um, We'll get to it over unresolved trauma. By the way, trigger warning. (laughs) Huge trigger warning. There's like sexual um, abuse uh, central to this book. And then there's Ed, who fucking sucks. He just sucks. He's like, but not like she does, right? He's a wimp. He's a yeah, loser. He, he
1: normal sucks. He's like just yeah. a guy who sucks. <laughs>
0: yeah, he's like, he escaped his um, hotshot life because he couldn't take what it did to him, but also because of the trauma. We'll get to that. By the way, spoilers from here on out. Um, Ed and Saraya are brother and sister. And they their journey through space stems from the same trauma uh, visited upon them by their father. Um, so he just like, would prefer to blot out reality. And when he can't do that, he kind of just goes along with all these terrible things that are happening to him. Um, He just kind of lets it happen to him. And then there's Michael Kearney. I fucking hate him so much that... He's legit like the fucking Joker. Like... Yeah. He's so fucking bad. Like... I've read this book three times now, and his chapters take me like five times as long to read as the other chapters. Because it's so brutally agonizing to have to read about his shit. Like, this is a guy, so normie Brit, right? Middle class, everything in place, everything proper in that stifling British way. That got, like, sexually hung up when he was a kid. Like, got hung up on these fantasies that he had. But now he's like unable to penetrate women, right? He only like um gets them off and he doesn't penetrate them. But then all of those pent up like sexualized aggression he takes out on them by killing them. And he is obsessed with this entity called how do you pronounce it the Schrander?
1: The the Schrander? I don't the yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean it's supposed to be unpronounceable, right? it's like a made up name. Yeah. Kind of reminded me of the Shrike in, um, fuck, the Hyperion Cantos. What's the guy who wrote that? Dan um, Simmons.
1: Yeah. Who kind turns out also is a uh, reactionary huge asshole.
0: But Hyperion is a fucking
1: perfect book. Fucking perfect yeah. book.
0: Yep. But I'm a sucks. dick, but. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of reminded me of the Shrike, you know, like time traveling, monster, whatever. He's so obsessed with running away from this thing that he's developed a sort of mental illness, kind of similar to OCD, Well, he believes that his actions have some sort of distancing effect on this entity, right? Um, and if he only does things right, like fucking killing people, then he can postpone this entity's confrontation with him. And he's just the worst. He like abuses every single person in his life, including his science partner. And he's in- completely incapable of action, much like Ed, right? But in a more twisted way. And I'm saying all of this in Harrison's merit, right? Like writing these fucked up characters and, and thinking about these people and making them actually tick is hugely difficult and done super well in light, but it doesn't make for an easy read.
1: Yeah, it it generates this profound sense of like friction through, through all of it. Like you crave some kind of transformative act to, to occur some kind of big event that will come and puncture this veil that seems to cover like the uh, moral and ethical uh, decision-making parts of these people's brains. Yeah. Um,
0: and then it doesn't like, the no, it doesn't fierce. at all.
1: Yeah. <laughs> if anything, this is, um, so this is actually part and parcel with good cyberpunk writing in general. Um, and why I feel that this very comfortably fits in that realm, even, Though it's not uh, even though it's a space opera. Um, this is this is without touching on the more obvious part, formally given the amount of noir narrative structuring and noir narrative writing in it. That being so, a major component of Cyberpunk is Yeah,
0: just, just to stop you here and support exactly what you're saying, Nova Swing, the second novel, is literally noir, just straight up noir, in a city in the Kefahuchi tract setting that is falling apart from the inside by objects randomly appearing at its center.
1: That fucking rules. Oh, that's, but, but God, that's like, baller.
0: That's literally like a bar with a lady in red that sings Cabaret, and a detective losing his memory, drinking his life away, trying to solve crime inside the city. And it's fucking, it might be my favorite of the three. It's that super
1: good. Um it's so good. But, but, so even outside of those formal components, which are obviously still necessary there is that um that spiritual essence um so this is uh, a part about genres that i sometimes get ragged on by by certain people of like deriving them not necessarily from a material component but from like what is this intended to do and obviously for the broader thought about genres um it's because genres can be any number can be constructed from any number of different ways Um, And so something like the one that I refer to a lot is like prog rock. You can arrive at prog rock through wanting to make progressive music in a rock context. And so that means pushing it forward in some uh, way, adding a new element, adding new technology, adding new structures. Or you can arrive at it by trying to replicate the sound of progressive rock of the past. So a band that's a yes clone isn't really progressive in the sense that they're not adding anything, but they still arrive at it because they sound like old prog rock. Meanwhile, uh, the stuff that Radiohead was doing in in the '90s and early 2000s is progressive rock music. Um, and so you have these two different modes. Likewise, in that sense, this has that spiritual capacity of cyberpunk, even even while it has uh, the the structural bits as well. In the yeah. sense that it's focused on that sense of, like, rabid acceleration. That's also one of the reasons that, like, the clipped prose of, say, Neuromancer, the prototypical um, cyberpunk novel. Uh, cyberpunk existed prior to Neuromancer, but that one is, like, it, it's it's the Black Sabbath debut of it. <laughs> or the King Crimson no, debut. The watershed moment. Yeah. Like you can point to Procol Harem and stuff like that, putting records out in the sixties, but then it's like in in the court of the Crimson King happens and you go, Oh no, it's a thing now. Um, Is that clipped language wasn't just borrowed from which Chandler is it? it Raymond Chandler, the, the, the noir writer. Um, Yeah. Not the minimalist writer. Um, But it wasn't, just borrowed from him to evoke detective writing it was also meant to evoke i have two seconds to tell you five seconds worth of a sentence and so i just have to crunch it down um that sense of like the things are moving faster than the language can keep up with ideas are flowing faster than we can process them images are flooding into our sense organs faster than our brains can assemble them um that kind of like flowering rabidity that is like deep within cyberpunk, that franticness um, that is mirrored like one, it's mirrored in the deeply fractured psyches of the main characters um, and leads you to, to want that moment when either everything clicks together or it all breaks. But, he retains this, like... He retains this horrible tension. That's the thing that I... I don't don't want to get into necessarily textually how it ends, but the fact that nothing breaks. It just keeps going all fucked up.
0: Yeah. There's no... Like, you're told that stories need to have, like, a resolution. They need to end with, like, things being resolved. But Harrison is like, why... Why would I do that? (laughs) Let's just keep going. Uh, It just keeps going. Um, I I really relate to everything you said, and especially this idea of like unresolved tension. And I think that kind of speaks back to the idea of hyperstation and in general the work of CCRU. Guess what, by the way? M. John Harrison um, has had a seminar, a conference on his work, guess where it was hosted?
1: Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Are you for real?
0: University of Warwick, where the CCRU was uh, did their thing. And in 2016, M. John Harrison received an honorary doctor of literature from the University of Warwick. So, like, the chances yeah. of this CCRU overlap being a mistake or a coincidence are getting uh, slimmer and slimmer. But getting to the meat of the thing, the content... There's the sensation inside the Kefahuchi track that all of the characters, the events are happening to them, and they react in certain different ways to try and control those events, but they all fundamentally fail to do so. Right? Saraya is maybe the character that most tries to change her fate, right, and affect um, events. She fights against them and she tries to be faster and smarter and meaner than everything else. But again, without spoiling the content too much, she's just on this track, being guided by this ancient tech on its own path of self-actualization. Ed is like the one that says, you know, if everything's happening to me, then fuck it. I might as well have fun along the way, right? And he's completely along for the ride and getting swept up in the tide of things. And Michael might be closest to superstition, right? If only I do these rituals, if only I cast that he has these um, die that he stole from, this dice, sorry, that he stole from the Shrander, supposedly. We'll get to that in a second. And if he rolls them enough times and in the right way, maybe he can dodge this monster, or if he kills enough people, then he won't be killed himself. But then you find out that the dice are just from a game in the future, and they have nothing to do with the surrender at all. And he didn't really steal them so much as he just bumped into them the first time that he met this entity. And they're like completely meaningless and have no impact on reality whatsoever. and But he just keeps feverishly believing in them. But the events are out of their control. They're locked inside this faster and faster spinning um, engine of... Progress, collapse, progress, collapse. Right and The Kefahoochee tract is like 400 million years of history, and it all looks the same. An alien species so- shows up, they set up stuff to try and understand the tract, and then they collapse when they can't or when they burn too many resources on it, and it just keeps happening. But the tract remains, right? It doesn't change. It doesn't flinch. Everything just passes um, over it, but humans are caught up in this... Um, you know what it reminds me of? I'm not even talking about it. Angelus Novus, the angel of history that um, Benjamin Walter wrote about. This idea that the angel of history is looking back at time and seeing the refuse of the past, right? This like trash heap of, of history, all this accumulated stuff that's gone before it. And it's just like, it's pathetic, right? And this is another thing that really echoes through Harrison's writing, and I think some of the CCRU stuff was also trying to channel right, this idea that the past is folly, but we can't really break out of it. Trying to break out of that cycle is meaningless. All we can do is accelerate it until it collapses. So I think light also has those ideas of like yeah. acceleration, collapse baked into it, um, which is really interesting.
1: It's I. I struggle sometimes to have a more insightful thought about it because it it does this so one of the things that uh impresses me about his writing and again that's this my first experience with him despite having heard the name a lot and really like wanting to dive into it i even yeah. have a copy of the sunken land begins to rise again i still in my need house. to read that one it's supposed yeah. to be very good um but is the clear literary uh mindset with which he approached these stories. So obviously he's well accomplished in writing like genre narratives. You look at like a brief description of most of his books and they they have balls out wackadoo shit that only a Brit from <laughs> from that era could could generate. Um just yeah. complete like bing bong ding dong horse shit that <laughs> slaps. Uh for lack of a better word. Um it's, it's I mean called, that very uh, lovingly. The ballcock, right? Oh yeah. Um, where you hear a description and you're like, what the, f- what the fuck? Um, <laughs> uh, and so, one, I have just a general resonance with that because of, like, wanting to make something that when someone hears it, they sincerely wonder if you were on drugs. And then you can sincerely tell them, no, I've just trained my brain to think this way. Um, love it. Love it. Ah, oh, fucking adore it. But he retains a strong literary function, which you can see baked into the structure that most of the time, the reason why we think stories are supposed to have an ending is because we have this Campbellian arc baked into our heads, uh, or we're told we're supposed to have it baked into our heads that stories have a beginning, a middle and end. There is an initiating incident. There is conflict. There's resolution. It has, you know, there's a change that happens to the characters. Good writing is predicated on this moment of change. And, One of the things we mentioned this uh, a couple times before, but one of the things that I really love about writing from other cultures, so like Indian novels, novels from India, novels from China and Japan, novels from African writers, novels from South American writers, especially indigenous ones specifically, is you wind up very quickly realizing that if Campbell is talking about a real thing, there's very Very lots of underlines would most commonly appear in the West because we get like completely different narratives where. so while recording we actually had a um a pretty bad technical error that went on our, our recording uh golem known as craig uh staged rebellion um and basically we it we just got a bunch of garbled audio um only lost a couple of minutes worth um so hopefully the thought is still coherent um There is a little bit of a loss between the bridging gap of what I was saying during recording about, um, Campbell and specifically how much his thoughts do or do not apply to at least specifically Western storytelling. And then M. John Harrison's, um, usage of completely different modes of storytelling that are very antithetical to Joseph Campbell, um, That's basically all you need to know going into the next part. There obviously are a couple missing specific details, but you should be able to piece it together from there. Um, uh, All power to Craig. Uh, All praise to Craig. Craig, I am so sorry for anything I have said negative about you during my entire life. All right, and back in. The the reality, sometimes falling into the trap of they bear personal atomic responsibility for these things in a way that can absolve the structures that impress this on them um obviously it's a complex problem there is there are components of personal responsibility for actions as well as systemic ones but the allegorical figure here at least just presents us with that tension point he deliberately he doesn't wrap it up he doesn't simplify it he doesn't try to um, Dialectically disentangle elements because that's another, and it's fitting given someone who influenced Moorcock and was influenced by Moorcock in return. There's a fitting Nietzschean intensity to resist a dialectical approach. That dialectics is something that this is one of my only critiques of dialectics as a methodology. It's something that we pray and that we hope takes hold over the world and breaks down, um, contradictions, but there's this lingering terror of what if no matter how much things accelerate, nothing ever breaks. What if it just gets worse and worse and worse, and there isn't a breaking point? What if it's a bottomless pit? Um, yeah. And then the only thing that can break it is some Nietzschean eruptive force. And in a certain way, he models that a bit with the. There wasn't. There wasn't acceleration of contradictions that led to the events here. If anything, the contradictions of of our lives and of our reality are still contained uh, by 2400, where two of the strands of the narrative take place. Um, like we don't see much betterment in many, many, many ways from yeah. the serial killer physicist arriving at this uh kefuhuchi tract technology versus uh the future but there are these like nietzschean eruptive moments of oh this thing arrives and everything changes nothing that's important changes but everything around it changes um it feels yeah. it feels very Delu- uh delusian in that way
0: i totally agree and i think at the end of the day, and this is maybe my last thought on this. I mean, we can talk about this novel like fucking 20 hours, right? Yeah. So it there. makes
1: perfect sense that he wrote more novels about this because it, it feels like an an intellectual open sore
0: yeah. in a good way. Um, By the way, um, fucking Nova Swing, the last one, goes back. Sorry, not Nova Swing is the second one. Empty Space. It goes back to the light uh, storyline in many ways. And oh boy, does it get weirder. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it gets fucking crazy. Anyway, I think the world that kind of like joins all of this together, the, the idea of hypostition and this Nietzschean struggle and the dialectic and all that stuff is disruption in the sense that the future, when being imagined, when being written about, should be disruptive if you can read about a future and go, oh yeah, that all makes sense. Like, there's nothing here that I didn't expect. And the author kind of did did a bad job. And I think this is, in a way, something that underpins the entire new wave of science fiction, right? They kind of look at the golden age and they say, yeah, yeah, okay, shit, spaceships, right? Cool, whatever. But mostly, the social structures that we're familiar with, and specifically 50s Americana, get transposed into the future. And when you read it, it's like, okay, it's my society, but there are spaceships. Or if you look at Star Trek, it's like, it's not your society, but everything's been solved. Um, Now there's like, you know, exploration and wars or whatever, but no single person goes hungry on Earth, everything has been solved, and somehow it works, and it stays in one shape, and there's no main disruptions. Like, there's no civil war in Star Trek, right? There isn't a line where the Federation destroys itself or whatever. It just fucking works. So you look at it and it's kind of placid, right? It's kind of... Uh, it works, it, it flows. Whereas with something like M. John Harrison or Alfred Bester, who wrote the Star's My Destination, or Samuel Delaney, or any of these people, even Jose Philip Farmer, whose writing was decidedly brighter, but still kind of weird, um, the future creeps you out. The future is uncomfortable. The future shows you a mirror of where you are now. Like you said, it replicates a lot of the tensions that we still have, but they're like reconfigured or even misconfigured. And things don't totally make sense. Now, some writers leave that disruption on the conceptual level, right? Like the stories, the... um the characters or the allegory level is weird and is strange and tells a strange story, but the literature is straightforward and easy to pass. But someone like Harrison or J.G. Ballard, they take the breakages, the disruption on the conceptual level that their books are trying to convey, and they put it into the actual writing. That kind of takes us back to House of Leaves, right? And this idea of um, hypertexts and um, cybertexts that need instructions to read. So it's not that far, but it's more of an effort to read M. John Harrison than it is to read a Star Trek novel or anything else. Not because it's better. Well, it is better, but it's not because (laughs) of that that it's harder to read. But it's because Harrison lets the disruptive nature that's in the story elements bleed into the language. And that's where you get your techno babble and purple prose and really uncomfortable sex scenes, like really uncomfortable, um, and characters that you despise. It's all this, like, shock of the future. By the way, that's also a CCRU thing, future shock. Um, this disruption that the future creates on your present that makes it so good. it makes it so good and makes you want to keep reading it it's like getting slapped there's some sort of thrill in getting slapped right Your your senses go into into hyperdrive same thing here and he's just a master of not slapping you too hard right like keeping you on the edge and keep reeling you in with some stuff you can hold on to but then taking you on this crazy ass tangent and wild perspective on what's happening which is just um second to none and then he does it differently on Every book, which is like, what the fuck? That's true genius, right? If you have one shtick and you do it twenty books, that's still good. But if you have twenty books and each book has a different shtick that breaks you down, that's where the real shit is. And then John Harrison is definitely a writer that um, can do that.
1: I I very strongly get the sense of why, like all my favorite writers, like him. It's oh yeah. It it reminds me of. And then hearing from people that this isn't even considered his best book of his. And I'm oh, like, yeah. what the, what the fuck? <laughs> like what are, what's the best one? Like, um, yeah. uh, that it, it's that same vibe that I got when I first read like Lord Lord of Light. Um, and I'm like, holy shit. Like there's also something strangely, um, contained within like new wave science fiction and slipstream stuff where, and it, it makes me frustrated and angry in a certain way, not at the books, but at um, the contemporary shape of science fiction, that why do these still feel new? Like, they should these yeah. shouldn't feel new. It's sort of like one of the reasons that we still have retro prog rock is because A lot of the lessons of it just straight up haven't been internalized by popular music. The intent of it wasn't to make fringe music. The intent was, I want these ideas to take root. And then the perpetual frustration that like, I shouldn't have to feel when I'm reading, say, like Anna Kavan, that this is a new and thrilling way to approach literature when the book is 50 fucking years old. Like... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's in certain ways. It's a good frustration because these books do exist. They do have defenders. They do have um and I, then, you know, some someone like M. John Harrison, who's literally still productive, still making really fucking good work. I'm just this is not so much about his novel itself as it is the frustration of like light for me shouldn't be a fringe case like Maybe it nothing. Maybe we don't need it all to be as avant-garde or as you know, et cetera, et cetera. But like, it's just so tasty. How come more people aren't? And then you know, I think I think back the the connecting bit there is like, well, all of the authors that like all the authors that are more or less worth respecting already know and like this guy, and this is where a lot of them had been pulling their ideas from and. You know, you remind yourself or I remind myself, rather, let's make it personal, of of the intellectual and aesthetic continuity of these things, that when I'm reading a new writer, because obviously there's been some great science fiction that's been written over the as uh, science fiction, fantasy, horror, literary stuff in the past year, five years, ten years. A- any time frame you pick, there's been great stuff made. The reminder that they are in a continuity and are aware of this flesh of words that that soothes me on that question in a certain way it's like okay this isn't in no way is it a fading discipline it's you know the I, shape changes but someone like becky chambers i guarantee if not this guy then you know others of his world for um, sure
0: and, uh, and, and lackey for sure and Adam yeah. a Oh oh we should do two to like the lightning I already covered it for my other podcast, Anarchy SF. Have you have you read uh, *To Like the Lightning*?
1: I, I haven't. Um... Oh
0: my god! You're, you, this is one. Okay, I'm calling. You. <laughs> this is one of the books you're going to thank me for telling you to read. What was the
1: name of it again?
0: *To Like the Lightning*.
1: To so like... it's
0: a utopia based on Enlightenment era thinkers, as in they have a holiday for the Marquis de Sade. but it's actually a dystopia. But it's actually a dystopia. Um, Bringing everything together on M. John Harrison, I just, please read the Centauri device as well. It's 1975, that was when it was released, and, like, not enough people have read it. It's on the science fiction masterwork series by Golanz, um, and it's fucking incredible. It's like... My, the star's my destination, but it has anarchists. By the way, M. John Harrison is an anarchist, um, which is extremely good and also makes sense if you think about the Moorcock um, connection. Yeah. And the last thing. Before we go to music, we suck at this, Langdon. We should have done this on the opening because now less people are listening. But we'll do it now. <laughs> we have a Patreon. Um, speaking of hypostitions, <laughs> um, sadly. We live in a world where things that make money are more real. And if you like this podcast and you want us to keep making it, then go over to Patreon, just search for Death Sentence. Nothing is called Death Sentence. Um, and back us, we are very close to our first goal because we have some wonderful backers who've been with us since way before I joined. Um, but if we get to a hundred bucks a month and we're currently at like 92, I think, we I can't believe I'm going to commit us to this. Um do it. We've chance. been talking about this for a chance to do back it. out. Last no. chance to back out. No, no, let's do it. We will read the book of the new sun um in its entirety and do like a special thing on it. Just for those who aren't the book of the new sun was written by Gene Wolfe and is the best work of science fiction ever written.
1: Yeah, yes. It, not, this not, is... Yeah. Literally, in my mind, it is a duel between this and Dune. Depending on the day, I swing different ways, but those are, like, yeah. legit. Deep, and as far
0: yeah. as genre goes, think about it's Vancian, far future, but taken to an incredibly bold extreme.
1: In many ways, it's like if if Borges wrote Dune.
0: Yeah, but which... also it was spliced with house of leaves and a bunch of other weird shit.
1: It's ground zero for most of the hyper intellectual sci-fi that you could ever think of, like ever. Um,
0: it's, yeah, go ahead.
1: It, it like quite literally, it's the foundation stone for like, for so, so, so much. Um, Mm -hmm. it, because the I, the I I introduced it to my so my current roommate, uh guy named Preston, who should we'll probably have on the show at some point because I've I've accidentally trained him into being good at reading. Um uh, <laughs> he uh, he started being my coworker at, at my other job um when he was still a teen. Uh he was, you know, just like a high school job and I was just like another worker there and had vaguely similar taste and I knew that he liked um like sci-fi and had wanted to get into more literary stuff, but common complaint to people um, with Western educations, American school systems don't do a great job of teaching literature. You either have the knack and you fall into it naturally, or you don't have the knack and you feel like this isn't for you, even though really you haven't had a real chance. Um, So I convinced him to pick up Book of the New Sun, and I told him, like, I've read this before at any given point feel free to talk to me about it. And I gave him (laughs) one question that I would repeat every time that we uh, did it. And it was, what genre is this book? Yeah. So, And the beautiful thing is, again, don't want to dive too into it because I'm so excited for doing this. uh, But every time I talked to him, the answer to that question changed, which is sort of the indication. And it's the book that taught him how to read in a literary way because it's also so fucking tight. Yeah. So Very
0: just fine. just to nail this home and to reiterate something Lang like just said, there are books written about how to read this book. Um, it's Jean Wolf was like a Christian mystic, and a lot of that stuff is in the book, and it's all allegory, like a hundred percent of it is allegory. And the book tells you about ten percent of what you need to know, and everything else is hinted at. So I read it the first time like raw. I just read it. And then I read it a second time alongside a compendium called Solar Labyrinth, which I'll be using again if we get to read it. And I don't want to be like too pretentious or condescending or something. You want someone to walk you through this book. There's like so much happening beneath the surface that makes it even better than what it already is. So to wrap up this thing, um, if we get to $100 a month, we'll do Book of the New Sun. And then every other goal after that which we'll probably do in like 50s we'll choose another quote unquote impossible book because this is going to be very complicated and very long these books are yeah. fucking long
1: yeah um, the, to, to to clarify on the uh on the book of the new something this wouldn't be one episode it would be much closer oh, yeah. to what we did for the invisibles where we did a single episode for every volume and then did an additional episode for uh the filth where I'm not even sure that we could do it in four episodes of one for each of the sub-books. Probably not. We'll we'll figure something out. It will be a multi-part. You won't have to worry about... um, We'll go... It'll, on one hand, be full spoilers, but because of that, we're going to be able to dive, like, as deep as possible into, into the book.
0: Yeah. And then after that, we don't want to, like, commit too much. But we have some stuff on our list. We already mentioned Dalgren... That would be a nightmare Um, (laughs) if we we get to like 150 maybe we'll do Delgren and then from there the future the, the sky's the limit we can do Crying of Lot 49 or fucking Blood Meridian or any other weird ass crazy hard to read book that you might um think about Langdon do the music thing
1: all right so uh yeah, to to close this out, we just uh have uh the lord's best music fucked up weird death metal. Um oh, yeah. <laughs> uh it's the best music that exists. Uh bands that don't play it are wrong. Um they may make good music. They may make good music, but they're wrong. They need to make the best music and that's fucked up weird death metal. Um uh the band we're going to be playing is one called Seputus. Um the short version of them is they started way back when as the one of the very first bands that uh, a guy like friend of the show, like actual friend of the show, not not when we say that, like Margaret Thatcher is a friend of the show, um, um, an yeah. actual friend of the show, Doug Moore. Um, it was uh, one of the first bands that he ever formed when he was still in high school, um, with a guy who wound up later joining Piran, uh, uh a technical, let me rephrase that, a band that started as a technical death metal band but eventually expanded into noise rock and experimental rock and a number of other, like, little fringe genres. But as things went on, uh, Seputis eventually put out a debut record in 2016 um, that uh, was pretty normal compared to this new one. It was still, you know, <laughs> you know, some some wild riffs some weird riffs but uh it it was ultimately still like a combination of black metal and death metal, a combination of some techie bits, you know pretty pretty normal. You, you know what to expect from that kind of thing. Um in the intervening time, uh all of the members of Seputus have since become members of Pyron. Uh and Pyrron has gone off in this other direction. Um, And about the same time that they started Going into this other direction The guitarist Piran, who also founded Seputis was like okay well you know I'm still writing this other stuff I can still Pocket these riffs and you know table them To the band if the band wants them We use them if they don't I'll keep a Tape log and so just Over the course of a Number of years assembled What became this record Phantom Indigo and it it plays like, like an alternate history of Purron, of like if the mother of all virtues, the um, famously the only record they had that came out through Relapse when Relapse was snapping up much more like wildly experimental bands, um, and yeah. then I think dropped them right after the album came out, um, but at least for me that was that was their breakthrough record. I hadn't really heard of them before, and then relapse in the early 2010s was on everyone's tongue so it's like hey they're putting out a weird tech death band I was like oh I'm in um this feels so much like a return to those sounds maybe not deliberately maybe they weren't deliberately going I want a place to you know continue to play that kind of music but it it feels that way and I'm so stoked because like Piran's off doing their own different thing now. So it leaves this opening for these players to play this type of music, which they are, as you're about to hear very fucking good at doing. Um, yep. Also look at that album art, like Google <laughs> it now, Google Phantom Indigo by Seputis, knowing that that's a death metal record and it's weird. It's scronky, It's a little cavernous. We get some proggy and techy stuff thrown in there, but it's also like gross. It's, and then you see that image.
0: So that's it, um that's done by Caroline Harrison, right?
1: Yeah. I I believe um, the cover art was done by Caroline. I know that she did the um the uh photo for the photo. Oh, oh the I album that with Alex, Alex and Lon.
0: Yeah, yeah. Based on a, on a photo by by Harrison, yeah.
1: But yeah, it's like you put all that together and you're like this is going to be a fucking tight record. Um and it is. I I sincerely love uh the stuff that this whole like like crowd puts out. Um because like Doug Moore is in a couple other bands that are all fucking tight. Yep. Um yeah, so this is uh yeah this is this is Seputus with the learned response. <laughs>